Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And we thank you that we, your people, can stop, can pause in the week. And so on this first day of the week, may gather together celebrating the life that we have through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we assemble on this Lord's Day, uh, you are gracious to us. And in this moment, allowing us to look to your word and to be taught and to learn. So we pray today that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So just a really quick review from last week. Uh, last week, we looked at the question of what is truth. Uh, the sage says, buy truth. Do not sell it. Uh, it's that valuable. If you've got... Uh, the resources, again, metaphorically speaking, you want truth, true truth. And so what is this truth? Well, last week uh, we looked at that truth is, and again, hard in our day to even think about how plain this is. It seems as if we need some advanced answer to explain something that, well, is really simple. Truth is as things actually are not how you perceive them to be, not something that you have made up in your mind, not something that your emotions seem to want to lead, etc., etc. Truth is, as things actually are. But Scripture tells us very clearly that the standard of truth, again, I love, and I quote him often in this, I love the way that Francis Schaeffer put it. God's truth is true truth. It is eternal truth. And God is the standard of that truth. And, and we looked at briefly last week how we see that in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, that true truth, God's truth, is revealed to us in our triune God. Furthermore, we see that in God's love for His truth, He has chosen to reveal His truth to us in His Word. And so we go to God's Word to see this truth. And if you think about it this way, in terms of knowing who God is and knowing what God is like, that can only be known by going to His Word. And so we are a people, as we know, we are a people who are dependent upon the special revelation of God, and that is His Word. John Calvin said, nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. And so truth is, if Calvin is right, and I think that he is, that it is incredibly important to God, and so important to us. So what is then lying? Well, lying, simply put, is not telling the truth. Furthermore, lying is breaking of God's moral law. His Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, the Ninth Commandment teaches us. Then, we've looked at how are we to think about truth. And I have categorized <clears throat> six different uh, groupings of Proverbs to look at the top or the question of how are we to think about truth and just in summary what we looked at last week is how we are to think about truth is number one as from God number two as confirming number three as timeless number four as helping our neighbor number five 
as to be learned, and number six, as we began this study, as to be acquired. And so all of that we looked at last week. So that leads us to our question this week, and that is, how should we think about God's revealed word of truth? How are we to think of God's word? If God has chosen to reveal himself, he has chosen to reveal his truth, how should we think about that revelation? And we're going to begin with this, that God's word will prove itself true. <coughs> will prove itself true. Now, I want to read this proverb that you have on your outline, but I want to come back and give just a brief introduction to this concept. Let's look at the proverb first. Proverb 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So we're, we're looking at just the first clause in that. But let me pause here for just a second and explain how this perspective is so different from the world's perspective. When we think, and again, we're, we're coming up on October 31st, uh, which is not only Hallow's Eve, but it is also uh, the day in which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses upon the Wittenberg Castle door, and so supposedly beginning the Protestant Reformation. Of course, we know that it was already beginning, and sort of Luther just uh, threw some gasoline on the fire, didn't he? Uh, but we know in the Protestant Reformation uh, that one of the things that was emphasized in the solas was sola scriptura, scripture alone. And coming out of that, we saw the emphasis that in order to know the truth of scripture, we don't look to the Pope. We don't look to the church, per se. That's an important distinction. But we also don't look outside of Scripture to justify Scripture. And this is very hard for moderns to understand, drawing all the way from 1000 B.C., the Greek philosophical influence, all the way through the modern era. We typically think that in order for something to be true in Scripture, philosophically speaking, it must be confirmed by reason outside of Scripture. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, what came to light was is that that is dependent upon someone who has fallen in their sinful nature. And so we're relying upon someone or some assembly or philosophers at large to prove something true. And what was emphasized in the Protestant Reformation is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, but we look as Protestants for Scripture to confirm Scripture. And let, let me just give you a case of point, and all of you are going to be familiar with this uh, if you have been here for any certain amount of time. When I preach a sermon, you will notice that the argument that I am making as I expound on the Scriptures that I am, the argument I am making is not drawing from my reason. I'm not up there to say, well, you know, you don't know, and I know, and I'm right, and you're wrong. 
I don't make that case. Nor do I make the case in, in making an argument and expounding upon Scripture that somehow someone else has come and, there, and, and made an argument and therefore it has to be right because of their argumentation. It doesn't mean that I don't quote other people. You'll hear me quote Calvin and Matthew Henry and, and modern commentators and so forth and so on. But, but the majority of the time, what you will hear me do in making an argument from Scripture is I will quote what? Scripture. I will quote from Scripture. If I'm preaching, and you're going to see this when I'm preaching through the Psalms and the Songs of Ascent coming up in the Sundays ahead of us, that, that I will make argumentation from Scripture itself. And so if you go through... And I, I, I would imagine many of you probably don't do this, but you know we do provide my, my sermon manuscripts. They're available within 48 hours after I've preached a sermon, and you can get them online or you can get them the next Sunday on the foyer table. And if you just go through and count the number of Scripture quoted references I have in there and then inferences. Of course, you would have to read and know Scripture to know this, but you would probably be surprised at the the massive amount of scripture that is actually in those those sermons i'm quoting scripture almost every paragraph often every paragraph paragraph numerous times now i ramble through all of that to say not to point out anything about my preaching to say that you're actually very familiar with this doctrine of scripture supporting scripture and you see it all the time but sometimes Sometimes we tend to forget our Protestant doctrine and we tend to want outside influences to dictate how we see Scripture. And that is a very dangerous thing. If we believe, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for our sanctification, if we believe that, then... There is nothing outside of Scripture, including human reason, that can, in fact, dictate whether Scripture is true or false. You say, well, I, I, have, I have read the Bible, and I, I have a lot of concerns, a lot of areas that, that I find fault. Well, God finds massive amounts of fault with you, you <laughs> sinner. By nature, you were born with the inability to look and derive truth from Scripture. But Scripture is not. Scripture is, as we hold as Protestants, is the very Word of God. You've heard me say this before. I think that the, the Greek transliteration is... Uh, I'll see if I can get this right. If this is not, I'll uh, try to remember the Greek. Theopneustos which is, this is uh, the word, it's a, it's a com, com, combination noun. Uh, it is, no, it's a combination scripture. It is, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an adjective, isn't it? Uh, God, theo, breathed, breathed out by God, or as I believe the ESV translates it, God breathed. It is God Breathe. And so we look at it. Now, you say, well, what in the world does that have to do with what we're looking at today? Well, it has a lot to do with it. If there is something that Scripture speaks explicitly to, 
then it trumps your opinion. <laughs> I mean, think about that. It is so contrary to the way the modern mind thinks. But if you think this, and Scripture explicitly states this, not up for debate, you're always 100% of the time wrong. Right? Now, yes. Now, we'll get to, to just one second, Adam. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to the idea of that which is not clear and, and, and is perhaps up for interpretation. But, yeah, Adam? That, that's where I was going. Why do we have a thousand-plus religions? Yeah, yeah. Well, or maybe we should say, why do we have a thousand-plus denominations? Oh, there, yeah, that's yeah. There. Yeah, it's, it, it's a great question. And, and all of that comes down to, not all of it, I, I think that, and so I'm on video, so we'll, we'll see if I you know, have stones cast hurled at me. Um, but uh, in the Reformed tradition, we do believe there are certain denominations that just simply are not Christian. So, you know, I mean, there, there are some that have strayed so far outside the bounds historic Christianity they don't count but but if if we could just narrow it down to those that that are uh, we would consider Orthodox in the tradition that's where where the variance is I mean why are are we meeting here on a Sunday morning and we are Presbyterian as opposed to to Baptist that'd be a good one which we would consider our, our Baptist brethren to be Orthodox and it's in those areas where we seek to be diligent and faithful to God's Word, and we agree to disagree. But if any of you subscribe to Table Talk Magazine, uh, you know last month uh, there was an excellent article in there that, that basically, I forgot what the name of it was, somebody probably remembers, it was basically in praise of denominations. And I'm like, finally, somebody wrote the article that I've always wanted to write. Um, denominations are not bad things. I know in the kumbaya world, like let's all get together and hug one another, and we're only going to believe, you know, a couple of doctrines. Jesus was real and died and resurrected. Um, outside of that, you know, you know we're not going to believe anything else. Well, I mean, here's the problem. That, that Bible's a big book, and there's a lot there. And we probably ought to read it, study it, know it, and we probably ought to take positions on it. And, and so where that comes into your question, Adam, is our goal is to seek the truth. And our goal is <clears throat> when we look at the Bible that we have to, and I've said this before in this class, so this is nothing new, we have to take a position. And as Presbyterians, I said this in my sermon last Sunday, I said, here's the secret, is that when somebody comes to me and says, John, what's your position on X, Y, Z? Like 99% of the time, I just paraphrase our Westminster standards. Because our forefathers set down doc positions on doctrines, and through the years, actually in this case, since the 1640s, we have wrestled with those doctrines, and we have agreed to agree on the essential doctrines that we hold and agree on in the Westminster Standards. And we also have Orthodox brethren and sisters who we agree to disagree with. And they're down the street, right? Or somewhere around, around the town. And we agree, we agree to disagree on, on those, those points. Uh, does that mean one is true and one is false? Well, it does. Heaven will show. 
You know, I mean, it, it may be that I, I, I get to heaven and the Lord reveals that, you know, we, we weren't supposed to be baptizing babies after all. <laughs> but here where here I am, uh, I don't agree with my Baptist brethren. Uh, I don't agree with them on the Lord's Supper. I don't agree with them on church government. Uh, love them, and we agree to disagree. So, great question. So, in the Proverbs then, he begins and says, Every word of God proves true. Every word of God. Now, let's think about this just a second. What did Jesus say about the word, the revealed word of God? What, what, what did Jesus say about the word? Something will pass away. I'll give you a little hint. Heaven and earth shall, and earth shall pass away, but what? Not one shot or tittle will pass away. Yeah, yeah. The accent marks in the the accent marks in the Greek language. He uses those to note that they even those will hold, uh, so to speak. Uh, and, and again, probably implying uh, hyperbole there. But the point is, is that God's word is eternal, and so it is eternal. Truth. Every word of God proves true. But there's another angle that we can consider on this as well, and that is in terms of fulfillment. Because the word that's translated here, prove, from the Hebrew, can also carry the connotation of evidential. Evidential. And so, you can also say that that which God's word that's what God, we, we read in God's Word, we receive from God's Word, it will, as it is given, will be proven, from an evidential standpoint, will be proven true. It will be, you could say, fulfilled. And I'm going to talk about this in my, my sermon today, so I don't want to give too much away, but you think about it this way, uh, and this is the example I give in my sermon, is... If, if you would just for a moment wipe from your mind any knowledge of Jesus and the cross and any of that, just imagine that you don't know anything. And, and think then about Isaiah 53. And, and you're reading Isaiah 53, and prior to Christ's incarnation, you would wonder, who is this amazing person? Who is this? Isaiah actually writes in the past tense until he gets to the atoning effect of that suffering servant. And then he goes to present tense. Who is this amazing person who has done all of this, has accomplished all of this, and has suffered for my sake? And well, now take it out of your imagination. Come to where you are today on Sunday morning in 2022. We, we know who that is. And so, as Paul says to the Corinthian church, Christ is the fulfillment. He is the yes to all of God's promises. And so we see that God's word proves true in the sense that it is truth. It is eternal truth. It is not dependent upon outside reason or outside influence, but it is what it is, and that is truth. So also it will prove true as truth. The second point uh, to make here is that it should not be added to. Proverbs 30, verse 6. 
Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Now, I've, I've taken this out of context, uh, but, but again, if we were to put it back in context, we, we could think about this in the sense of wisdom personified and the wisdom of God, and we are to not to add to the truth that is given or that God gives, so forth and so on. But the point is, is that because God's Word is truth, we must be very careful with it. And again, the low-hanging fruit here is our, our cults, right? I mean, we can beat up on these all day long. Uh, you think about the, the Mormons and adding to and, and the so-called addition of, 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 of Scripture from uh, the angel Moroni or Moron and so forth and so on. I mean, you know, this is the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of being added to. But for our sake, as Christians, I'm not trying to convince you to be a Christian. If you think about this in terms of our sanctification, our edification, uh, not to add words to the truth could mean what? Just in very practical sense, not theological, not it, just in practical sense, what, what, what advice could this give uh, to us? Do not add words to the, the word, do not add to the words of wisdom. Your words makes it closet, makes it corrupt. Yeah, yeah. When, we, when we add to God's word, if it's God's word plus. Plus. Yeah. Yes. I think about uh, in that verse about false teachers. I won't name them, but that hear words from God. Yeah. God told me to tell you this. Yeah. God told you, know, you know who they are. Yeah. TV. Yeah. That's kind of what I think. Yeah, that, that that's a that's a that's a great example. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one of my favorite uh, and, and to be clear, I tend to be politer than I come across when I teach this class. Uh, I know you think I'm ruthless, but I'm, I'm, but I am inside my mind. Um, but uh, but but when 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 somebody uh, says something to that point, you know, like with the authority of, of God. Um, I always want to say, uh, you, there better be some, uh, some addition of, thus saith the Lord attached to that, or you've lost me. I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it. I may be the last of the great skeptics, but, but unless you are quoting from Scripture and you're telling me what God said, it's like these billboards, and this is one of my pet peeves, but, you know, it's, it, it, they're all black and they have the white writing and, you know, something... I forgot what one of them was. Some of you may remember, like, uh, stop sinning, dash God. Yes. Yeah, or something like that. I, I, you know, I'm like, come on. Yeah. Is that, is, is that what we've gotten to? We're so stupid as a culture that we've got to, got to somehow, you know, dumb down uh, God. And I think that's dangerous. Uh, I think it's dangerously close. Is the ones that, that say, uh, God has told me to tell you to keep sowing money with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Multiply. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm almost to that actually. I'm, I'm going to take up a collection at the end of this class. <laughs> God told me that you're not giving enough. Right? So not really. Alright. Uh, so it should not be added to we see here lest he rebuke you you be found a, a, a liar. So we want to be very careful in what we sit, say. All right, next question. What does God think about lying? 
If lying is not telling the truth, what does God think about lying? All right, let me catch up here. All right, let's look at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I think that's on the back of your handout. Yeah, it is. Okay, Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Okay, stop there and don't read the rest. All right, so I introduced this. I think I did. I think I introduced this at the beginning of this class in week one. If I didn't, um, so this is an ancient poetic introduction. Um, this would be, and this is a terrible example, but this would be like when you're getting ready to tell your child or grandchild a, a bedtime story, and you say, once upon a time, you've set the stage, right? It, it's, it's fiction, it's a story that you're going to tell, etc., etc. Well, here, and, and fascinatingly enough, they, they, they are... They are proverbs that are not uh, from Solomon. Um, there are other proverbs, but they will introduce this, and what it is, it is a poetic device to emphasize all seven things. But by drawing the attention to six out of seven, it is, so to speak, causing us to read carefully and to think diligently about what the poet, what the sage in this case, is conveying in this truth. So when you hear that, when you're reading the Proverbs and you come across that, it's, it's like ding, 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 ding. I really need to pay attention here. These are really important things because there are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to the Lord. Again, the, the, the quaintness of this is what? I, I said this before. Hate is the verb, what's the noun form of hate? Abomination. So it's, he's saying the same thing. All, all seven of these, God hates all seven of them. You, you, in other words, I heard someone say, you know, well, there's only six of those that God hates, not the seventh. Hey, like, eh? verb, noun, Welcome to the English language, right? They're the same thing. He's teaching us, but he's doing this in this poetic device to say, pay attention to what are the six, what are the seven haughty eyes, which is a metaphor for what? Pride. Pride, right? A lying tongue, which is a metaphor for what? A lying tongue. A lying tongue. Yeah, I'll be a liar, right? Hands that shed innocent blood. Well, again, that, that's written in a metaphorical way, but we understand that that's, that's a murderer. Uh, a heart that devises wicked plans, a schemer for Ill, evil, for ill intent, feet that make haste to run to evil. Someone that has no defense against sin in their life, right? A false witness who breathes out lies. So now we've moved not just from a lying tongue to what? A court of law. They're on the witness stand and they're lying. Right? And one who sows discord among the brothers. Someone who comes into the assembly, uh, someone who comes into the church, and uh, they're someone who causes strife. So, there are seven things here. Now, as you're looking at that, how many of those things are related to lying? Take your time. Look through them. How many of those are related to lying? 
because they're they're not all truth. Well, true, but we're that that's true. And lying is not telling the truth. But to narrow the scope, uh, five of them. Yeah, which ones do you think? Lying tongue, uh, heart devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness, and one who sows discord. Yeah, I, I think I think you could you you could make the case for that. Either five or four of them seem pretty obvious. Here's what I'm trying to draw to your attention, and, and again, we can agree to disagree on whether it's three out of seven or four out of seven or five out of seven. The point's what? And most of them. The majority of these things that are an abomination to God, that means that God hates them, are related to not telling the truth. That's why when I said earlier, and I read that quote to you last week and again this week from Calvin, and how Calvin argued that God holds truth most precious, that's why I think Calvin's right. Over and over and over again, you see the emphasis that God puts in his word of how important the truth is to him, how opposed he, to he is to lying. And so God hates lying. Proverbs 12.22 Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. Again, the metaphor is lying lips. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? Just lying. What's the, the joke whenever you see uh, a politician with his mouth open? Or whatever that joke goes, you know, you know he's lying. Um, but lying lips is the metaphor and are what? An abomination, which is the noun form of, now you know it, the verb hate. So God hates those who, the, the, the lies of people, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So this is a parallelism, right? We're seeing these two, but again, the sage turns it and opens the scope. And what do we learn in that second clause? And maybe I should just narrow the question to what do we learn about lying in that second clause? Negatively put, we, we, we could say that lying is not being faithful to God. That's, that's one thing that we could derive from that. What else? There, there is a delight that God has when we are faithful to Him, including being faithful with what comes out of our mouth. Being faithful with our lips delights God. That would be the narrow understanding of that, that second clause in that proverb. So, we only have a couple of minutes. I'm not sure if we'll get through all of this, but if God is truth, you can see where I'm going here, can't you? If God is truth, and if God hates lying, what does this teach us? What should, should we understand as uh, from this uh, revelation? Well, I'm going to give you five things, and I think that the Proverbs support all five of these. Number one, we should, if, if, if lying is an abomination to God, if God hates lying lips, then we should hate falsehood. Proverbs 13.5 The righteous does what about, hate, about falsehood? 
hates. The righteous hates falsehood. But the wicked brings shame and disgrace. To a certain extent, that second clause we can we can understand as an application of not telling the truth, right? But the sage widens the scope to general wickedness. But the first half of that, we find out something about the righteous one. The righteous one, that is the one who desires to please God, the one, the one who desires to live according to God's moral law, the one who wants to please God from the heart. The Hebrew expression would be one with a, a circumcised heart, one who wants to please God. This person hates falsehood. Why? Why do the righteous hate falsehood? And the answer to this question, as you're thinking about because it, God hates so that we can just start there. We, we can just start by saying, if God hates something, then I should hate it too. But, and and, and that is, that is, that's the best answer. But let's drill down a little bit more. What does this tell us characteristically about the righteous? What does it tell us characteristically about the righteous person? The I mean, hate's a strong lie. word. Huh? The righteous person doesn't lie. Okay, righteous person doesn't want, doesn't want to lie. I and mean, when they lie, I would imagine they, they hate to see it in themselves. Yes, yes Karen. Because of our fallen nature, we're capable of lying. That's exactly right. We are susceptible to this. And this is one of those things uh, that when we see it in ourselves, right, we, 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 we hate it. Um, so, one of the things in terms of, of characterizing it that we should be aware of is, is if we habitually lie, which I, I personally think can become a habit, if you've ever been around someone who's developed this habit, I think that, that lying can become a habit where someone just does it and it's just passed off. They, they do it so often, so well. Uh, as I say, they lie so well, they believe their own lies, uh, right? And, and so it can become a, a habit. And so one of the first characteristics to, to Karen's point is, is that we need to know where we are sinners. We need to know we are susceptible. We need to know that we are capable of telling lies and we should be aware of it and we should guard against it. When we do lie, of course, we should repent, confess our sin to the Lord. Of course, he forgives us for he is faithful and just. But a righteous person has developed the discipline within his or her life to guard against lying because they hate it. And that's the other thing, just for sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll add this, is that they, they have developed the, the discipline within their own life to align their thoughts, to align their mind after the Lord's. When I am, by living faithful to the Lord, of course, by the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit, but when I am living faithfully unto the Lord, what happens? I grow in my desire for the things of God. That's Christian maturity, isn't it? This takes oftentimes years and years, a whole lifetime, yeah, in fact. Right? right? Yeah. But as I grow in my faithfulness, my desires become more aligned with God's desires. And so the righteous one hates falsehood. I've got to move quickly. Number two, 
We should speak truthfully. We should speak truthfully. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, uh, which I think is just funny. What, what, what does it mean by, by fine speech? Well, in this case, it's actually positive. Fine speech would be someone who uh, speaks eloquently. They speak intelligently. Who does not speak eloquently and intelligently? A dummy, right? So that's sort of funny, I think. But it's the second clause that I'm drawing on. Still less is false speech to a prince, meaning... One who is in a position of authority, someone is in a position of, of, of responsibility, so forth and so on. How horrible is it when someone who is in a position of authority and responsibility is characterized by being a liar? Whew. That, 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 that's, that's concerning. Right? I argued in here, here before. And, you know, we, we, need to, we need to hold our leaders local, state, National, we need a home to the highest standard, right? Instead of the bottom of the dregs, right? So the highest standard, why? Because still less is false speech to a prince. It's not becoming someone who is in a position of authority and responsibility should be. We should seek that they be a truth teller. Number three, we should know the inestimable value to telling the truth. How valuable is the truth to you? Because it's of supreme value to God. Proverbs 19.22 What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. One who may be destitute, nevertheless, is more worthy, or we could say is in a better position than one who is characterized by not telling the truth. And so the point I'm making here, and the reason for the way I've described it, we should know, we should know the supreme, the inestimable value of telling the truth. It should be important to us. Number four, we should listen for and to truth. Proverbs 21, 28. A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. Now again, this is more than likely proverbial hyperbole uh, in terms of, of the perishing, but what is the sage conveying here? A false witness will perish. What, 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 what is that hyperbole teaching us? Well, in a number of ways, we just know that it's not going to last, it's not true. Uh, if, 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 you, if you're a liar, eventually you're going to be found out. You could say that. Uh, but then the second part of that is the word of a man who hears will endure. And, and the idea that I'm, I'm drawing from this proverb to convey is this, is that we should listen for the truth. And when we hear the truth, and this is whether it's coming from the pulpit or whether this is coming from relationships that we have or media or whatever, you name it, when we hear the truth, we should rejoice in all truth because all truth is God's truth. So we should rejoice when we hear the truth. And furthermore, we should be guarded when we don't hear the truth. 
And there should be something within us. Our conscience should spark, right? When we don't hear the truth, we should not dismiss it. It should go bump, 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 bump. In, 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 in my mind, this is the way it works. It may work differently with you. But when I hear someone lie and I know that they're lying, immediately I become very careful around that person because they've just told me something about their character. Mm -hmm. I can't trust you. Right? right? Now, it doesn't mean that we can't cut people slack and it doesn't mean that I've not lied five trillion times or however long you lie in, in 51 years and maybe you too. I've told lies and you have too. But when someone is habitually and characterized by lying, we should be guarded, but we should listen for and we should listen to the truth. Number five, we should live a life characterized by truth. Uh, and, and this is of supreme importance, isn't it? Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Uh, again, what is the, the sage describing here? When I get to the end of life, these things are important to me. I don't want to be so wealthy that I deny God. I don't want to be so poor that I sin against God presumably through stealing or what have you. Uh, I want to, to be provided for the way that God in His providence desires and the first clause. At the end of my life, what do I not want to be surrounded by? Liars. Liars. Yeah, I don't want to be lied to and I don't want to be tempted to lie. I don't want to end my life that way. Remove from me falsehood and lying and show so we should uh, we should live a life characterized by the truth all the way through even as the sage has said here even at the end of life i've gone over time let me pray for us our gracious god in heaven we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is truth for you are truth and you are the god who has revealed your truth to us and so as we assemble across the street to worship you we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. As we assemble as your people, your spirit is indeed present, so also revealing and leading us and empowering us to worship you. And so we look to your word, the word of truth, that we may glorify you. We thank you, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.